though we didn't know exactly what it was that we were going to build. For me, the prospect of working with you is somebody who I who I liked at an early at an early level and said hey, I could see myself working closely with this person and forging a professional and personal relationship. But also, wow, this is a really unique opportunity. We have the fastest growing sport in the country with the person who's at the front of that growth with a, with a terrific vision that I think I can help execute on. We didn't know exactly what we wanted to do, but we knew that we could create meaningful impact in the space. It's rare to find a business partner who is selfless. A year ago, I introduced my listeners to my older brother, Mike, who's been a lifelong business partner of mine. And we talked about ways that we approach business, investments, and hiring good people. One of those good turned great hires has evolved into my co-founder of Rabel Events, a nationwide business that hosts both experiential and lacrosse instructional properties. Mick Davis is wise beyond his years. While he's only 27, he's jam-packed with athletic and business acumen. On the show today, we talked to the youth sports audience, both parents and players, about the business of youth sports, the race to an athletic scholarship, rec versus club sports, single versus multi-sport participation, and what you should know to make the best decisions to reach your goals. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Enjoy my conversation with the co-founder of Rabel Events and Dartmouth football player, Mick Davis. Coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, in our offices, the Rabel Company's Rabel Events HQ space here, 101 North Haven Street, a shared workspace. If you're nearby, drop in and say hello. This is also the gap period that we call it, the only gap period in lacrosse where there's no professional lacrosse, indoor or outdoor, no youth lacrosse going on, college or high school. It's about a 15-day marker because lacrosse is effectively a year-round sport. But we're going to sit into this time and, and lean into it on the podcast and talk about primarily youth lacrosse with my co-founder of Rabel Events, Mick Davis, but going to start with your background, because what's interesting is you never picked up a lacrosse stick. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So for the most part, um, growing up in Seattle, lacrosse was just not a staple like it is here in Baltimore or just across the Northeast more broadly. I first saw the sport beyond pop culture references. Maybe American Pie was probably the first time that I ever saw it. American Pie. Probably. Yeah. But beyond that, we got a team at my high school around the junior year. Yep. So a lot of my friends started picking up sticks at that point. I had fully dedicated myself to football, so never really had the opportunity to play. Yeah, we host a couple events now in the Pacific Northwest, and they're both sold out. They, they sell out quicker than any other event that we host, and the talent is great. So lacrosse has really grown specifically in the Pacific Northwest, and Seattle and Portland is where we go. Your youth experience specifically, you said you didn't play lacrosse, but how much access did you have to sports? Um, I, I had a lot of access to sports. So I, I grew up in a very sports forward household. Um, my father coached a lot of my teams growing up. I think the first sport that I picked up was t-ball and started playing at five years old. Yeah. Um, so I played. Is that because you couldn't hit the fast pitch? hundred <laughs> percent. So I, I didn't, I didn't blossom as an athlete until the junior, my junior year of high school. I was a, um, I was a Husky young, young kid, didn't have much speed, not much hand eye coordination. So I played baseball, basketball, and soccer growing up. I actually didn't pick up football until my eighth grade and really fell in love with the sport. I was, I was never much for hand-eye, um, but I seemed to be pretty decent in anything that involved you know, more physicality. I was a pretty tough kid. Yep. Um, in high school, I played baseball, basketball, football. 
Um, dropped baseball after the first year. I think after 10 years, I was, I was ready to give it up. Also, my brother was a you know, star baseball player. So I was sort of happy to let him take that limelight and, yeah. and, and discover myself and create my own identity. <laughs> um, you know, for, you know, probably some of the right reasons, some of the wrong reasons. Um, you know, if you're good at something, all the things that come along with that, be it, you know, the gratification of, of ego and, um, you know, the praise that you receive, I, I started to get that in football and I really enjoyed it. Um, access to, to social circles, things like that. So that was, so that was great. Um, I also enjoyed playing the game, which is fantastic. The, my favorite thing about football is that you can't play it year round. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I absolutely love that. Um, you could focus during the season and outside of it, you're, you're preparing um, via training and training is just essentially working out, which is, you know, a, a healthy habit to have on a, on a cycle basis and cyclical basis anyways. Whereas my brother was playing baseball year round. That's not something that I had to worry about that fatigue and that burnout that you experience. Yep. So ended up focusing on that later on in high school, um, was fortunate enough to receive an offer from Dartmouth college to, to, um, come play football for them. It was the first visit that I took. It was negative 20 degrees in Hanover, New Hampshire in the yeah. middle of February. Um, they rolled the red carpet out for my mother. And you know, at the time, I wanted to go play at a big state school. Um, thankfully, wiser heads prevailed, had conversations with, with Coach Tevens, Buddy Tevens, who's still the head coach there. Yeah. Um, he sort of sat us down and said, look, you can go be a tackling dummy for four years at one of these big Division One schools if you'd like, um, or potentially go play at you know, a University of San Diego or another West Coast Division One AA school. But this is a pretty unique experience that you have. And um, you know, my experience beyond that certainly paralleled and in, in, in um, tracked against you know, the expectation. I had an amazing four years at Dartmouth and, and couldn't be more happy to have gone there. So wanting to educate our listener on the prospect of getting a college scholarship, can we start at the, at the revenue and non-revenue sport level in the NCAA explaining the difference between what's effectively two different forms of scholarship that can be distributed from coach to family? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of murkiness in the scholarship space. There are primarily two forms of scholarships, um, one of which is called headcount. And that's what folks are typically used to. That is what dominates the football space, basketball, um, and some of the other more dominant sports in, in the NCAA. It's primarily revenue sports, though, right? That's or is right. It, yeah. Those are primarily re revenue sports. Yeah. The way that those work is there are a lot of number of scholarships that you can give to individual athletes. So each athlete gets a scholarship up to the full amount. Yep. So that is typically where you hear of the, the fabled full ride coming into play. And the challenge is, uh, because those are the most dominant forms of scholarships by number and then also by dollar amount, that sort of trickles into folks' thoughts around how all other scholarships must operate in sport. All other sports act, behave differently. They're called equivalency sports. Um, so there are a certain number of full scholarships that are divvied out to each team, to each program at the Division I NCAA level for lacrosse. It's 12.6 full scholarships that can then be dispersed across the players on the team. So typically, it, it's rare that you actually get any full rides in yep. college lacrosse. Yep. Typically, what you get is a, a team where you know, there are scholarship dollars that are distrib distributed broadly across the majority of the players. Yep. Meaning the coaching staff can take that 12.6 if they're fully funded and uh, the, the majority of teams are not 
at the division one level. But if you're fully funded, you get that 12.6 and you can divvy it up however you wish across the four classes. So keep in mind too, this isn't 12.6 per class. So if you're a freshman coming into a team, you're subject to the 12.6 total if the school is fully funded, but whatever's left that the sophomores, juniors, and seniors are not taking. So give you an example. When I went to Hopkins, we had a terrific senior class. Uh, they were a team that led us to a 16-0 and year my freshman year and a national championship. A lot of scholarship dollars were allocated to that group. So then you have a, a class that was number one rated with Steven Pizer, Kevin Huntley, myself, a number of other guys, Michael Doniger, and we had to take whatever was left of that senior, junior, and sophomores. And then Coach Petro would divvy that up. So they're predicting essentially for the incoming freshman class what's left over from that most recent senior class to send to them. And then they can reallocate dollars from sophomores and juniors, although that's not typical practice. Last comment on, on headcount sports, and just so we're clear. A football team, the coaching staff has no other choice but to give a full ride to those recruits, right, if they're going to be scholarships. So you're not going to see a football player – of a fully fund program in Alabama getting half a ride. At a fully funded program, that's correct. Yep. You can give up to a certain amount of dollars, but due to the fact that it's a revenue sport and, and massive amounts of revenue for the most part, yep. they are genuinely, they're generally going to give a full scholarship. That's correct. Yep. So, so we can sit here then and, and discuss with families that, that we're often kind of courted to, to have conversations with. And we'll speak at the U.S. Lacrosse Convention in January and a number of other lacrosse-centric conferences and, and advise parents on, on the realistic outcome. And you can pull data of number of participants at the youth level and the likelihood to convert from high school to college, play at the Division One level, and this is purely Division One conversation. Um, we can talk D2, D3, and MC, MC, MCLA. But right now at the Division One level, the likelihood of getting a return on that investment from youth through high school of the thousands of dollars on average – per year going into club lacrosse, is that going to return? And what we found is that likely not, um, but the access to institution is worth it. And we found that through feedback that we've solicited, that we solicited to these families is like, yes, a scholarship is great, but getting access to Johns Hopkins, getting access to Duke, Princeton, Yale, and being able to go to that school is something that you can't attach a dollar figure to. Right. You, you could try, and it would potentially be a very large number, um, right. just at the, the commensurate level of, of downstream income that you would get from that. Yep. Um, there's also, you know, uh, this is certainly leading the way, if you're talking about Division One scholarships, but if you're looking back D1 through D3, you know, one in eight players essentially goes on to play at the next level, which is actually really high. It's one of the highest in, in sport yep. for lacrosse. Not to mention, you know, just the aspect of being competitive, you know, across sports, this is not just a lacrosse specific um, trend that we're seeing. Folks tend to specialize earlier in sports to be competitive. Um, it's, it's challenging because it creates a dichotomy, right? When I grew up, I was playing three sports, at a, at a decent level, but I felt okay about that because the majority of my peers were also playing at a decent level. Now, I couldn't imagine trying to pick up a sport late in the game, um, you know, as a, as a freshman or even a sophomore 
in, in high school in trying to compete, it, it, you lose a lot of the fun in the aspect if you're not able to compete close to the level of, of the peer group that you're with. Um, so there are outside, um, there's certainly outside factors that weigh into the positive benefit of playing team sports, many of which are sort of the common ones that we lean on, you know, learning teamsmanship, um, you know, building community, understanding how to participate with others. But if you're looking simply at the dollar figure associated with you know, what a scholarship can bring, uh, that's absolutely correct. It's not so much tuition dollars, but as much more to do with you know, the growth that comes with access to those high-end institutions. Yeah, we, we've talked about with a number of guests uh, that have played a multitude of sports and have been very successful at a high level on this podcast, the benefits of, of playing rec versus club and then multi-sport versus sport specialization. And, and I've said often that multi-sport greatly benefited me, but access to rec teams and playing rec uh, lacrosse and basketball my entire uh, young adulthood, um, you know, you get the level of, of, of skill and competition out of sport. Uh, the, the fun camaraderie in your local neighborhood with your peers, um, and, and then access through growth to hopefully the opportunity to play in high school uh, and then beyond. Club lacrosse continues to push more and skew more younger. I want to be clear, though, that we don't think the proliferation of club lacrosse is a bad thing. Um, what we try to encourage is the revitalization of rec, which has decreased in markets across the country by 50%. Um, we think they should be running parallel path, paths. Optionality is critical. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so you know, part of the reason that we wanted to get involved in the youth space is there are a lot of folks that are operating, some of which are, are very talented or doing an incredible job of creating young talent and, and, and building up young players. There's also a lot of misinformation that goes on. If you go onto any club lacrosse website across the board, you're going to see pretty much the same verbiage, more or less, from one to the next. Everybody is going to make claims that they are in the top echelon, the top caliber of club lacrosse. Um, obviously, that cannot be the case for everybody, uh, but price points typically sit around the same level. You know, our hope was to create some clarity by nature of having the best players in the game delivering instruction to youth players. We think that there's no better proxy for good coaching and uh, for a quality program than having folks that you can trust that are really sitting at the front of those experiences. Um, the mission statement that we landed on was Rabel Events creates great lacrosse experiences by the best lacrosse players in the world. Um, so that's essentially where we landed in the space. We looked at, at entry through you know, a number of different means, be it through you know, M&A of, of a large organization and, and rebrand and trying to you know, expand that 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 business, that entity. Um, we looked at getting into the tournament space or into other events specifically, you know, where we felt we could have the most direct impact was creating that conduit between your peers and the players directly. And so far, I think there's been, you know, a pretty strong response to that, um, particularly through the parents. Yep. And, and we started with the Rabel tour and, and that was a bespoke experience that was a one day event where we were trying to work with all local operators, um, work with their players, work with rec players, and we also have a, a nonprofit initiative that you can share 
but going to 14 different markets across the country throughout the year, host events where we bring up to 200 kids, uh, give high-level instruction, infuse a lot of fun uh, through contests and, and uh, gaming and engagement, uh, and really celebrate the sport. Yeah, so the nonprofit initiative, um, this is one that we talked about very early on as being core to our mission. And in many ways, it's core to the mission of, of the broader sport of lacrosse. You know, typically, the stereotype of a lacrosse player is a, a wealthy white man, um, at least on the men's side, of course. So, you know, in order to build bridges and build beyond that space, there needs to be a deliberate effort to get the sticks and hands across socioeconomic lines. Um, there are a lot of organizations that don't, have done a really tremendous job of driving that mission forward specifically. You look at Charm City Youth Lacrosse here in Baltimore, Oakland Lacrosse over in the Bay Area, Denver City Lacs in Denver, and you know, really dozens around the country that are doing the same thing. <clears throat> Our goal is to build excitement through the Rabel Tour with lacrosse as, as a vehicle. Um, and by bringing in players from those programs, our hope is to continue to build a love for game that will ideally proliferate beyond those groups, um, continue to get sticks in more hands, and get players out to the events. So what we do is we scholarship at least 10 players at each of the events, um, yep. typically working through urban lacrosse initiatives in the cities that have them available. There are still some cities that do not. Um, Seattle, Portland, if there's anybody in the Northwest that wants to get involved with this, yep. um, there is some white space open out there for this type of initiative. Um, it's just absolutely critical for the overall growth of the game to bridge those gaps. Yeah, one of the things that you and I often talk about in our love for sport is that it is a vehicle for change and social good and social justice and uh, a vehicle that is celebrated either through the sports celebrity or the teams or or the wins and competition and the losses and the defeat and what that means from building character. If you're anything like me, your workout is one of the most revitalizing parts of your day. And we all know the keys to a great workout, right? Plenty of water, a healthy diet, proper form, but it turns out there's one more major thing that we have to resort to. It's the quality of your sleep. A third of Americans aren't getting good sleep, and Molecule sleep products are here to change that. Molecule was air-engineered to create the sleekest and coolest mattresses in the world. They have proprietary extreme open-cell foam technology that works to achieve up to three times the airflow of their nearest competitor. Their unique blend of cotton and tensile offers unmatched softness and durability for the ultimate comfort and cooling experience. Molecule helps you bring your A-game, not just during your active days, during the deep sleep of your nights. As Super Bowl winning quarterback Russell Wilson, Olympic gold medalist Nastia Lukin, and premier American distant runners Ryan and Sarah Hall about how they're getting the best sleep of their lives thanks to Molecule. Even renowned neurologists and sleep doctors agree that Molecule sleep products are for anyone striving to maximize their performance. It's got my name written all over it. Try Molecule Mattress risk-free for 100 nights and Molecule Sheets for 30 nights. And right now, I'll give you $250 off any mattress or $50 off any sheet if you go to onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up to begin the best sleep of your life. That's onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up. Molecule, optimal sleep for ultimate performance. We've sat down and, and listened to uh, President Obama talk about how important in the workplace is 
that you have intentional inclusion. In sport, it's just as important to be intentional. And for us, we openly discuss the stereotypes of lacrosse and and the exclusivity at times uh, that it has developed being primarily a Northeast uh, private school sport. So addressing that in a meaningful way, and what President Obama says is that sometimes it takes longer, but ha- being intentional about it, whether you're hiring uh, across gender, across race, across sexual orientation, if you commit to that 10 out of 10 times, it will work because you get diverse perspective, you get diverse participation uh, and work product, and that will always help build the, the ultimate product for what essentially is a diverse culture in the United States. Similar to Rabel Tour, our biggest goal here is to reach really as many players as possible with as potent experience as we can possibly provide. Um, so we will set up events in the Northwest, we'll set up events in the Southwest, um, Middle America, um, you know, uh, trying to hit intentionally, again, the underserved lacrosse communities as well as more established areas. It's interesting you mentioned Rabel Tour in, in Seattle and the Northwest specifically as one that tends to quickly sell out. What we're seeing is areas where there's a, a lopsided interest in the sport, um, but with a coaching vacuum, that's where people are most hungry for coaching. Um, you go to Baltimore, you go to Long Island, which are the traditional hotbeds of the sport, there are a million former Division One players in market, all of which that have you know a very great experience, and there's a certain level of irreverence, I would say, even with the younger players, because everybody grew up with you know an uncle that played at Johns Hopkins yep. um, or a brother that plays in the MLL. So it can often be, times be difficult to get that guard down in those areas. Whereas if you go to a Minneapolis, um, Denver not as quite so much anymore. I think Tierney did a really good job of filling that gap there and creating that eco- ecosystem. Um, but in those markets where there's a bit of a vacuum for coaching, that's where there's just a ton of hunger um, around these types of events specifically. Yep. yep. It's one of those for better or worse concepts where if you, if you grow up in a hotbed, uh, you get a stick in your hands early on. Uh, you also have access to multiple touch points that are built in, which is great because our sport needs more hotbeds. Uh, but at the same time, to your point, uh, you have a community that maybe takes access to the top players for granted. And, and potentially you can lose that hunger um, and, and appreciation for such. Um, but we still see on average top talent uh, and, and number one recruits and top 50 recruits coming out of Baltimore and Maryland for that reason. So that's, mm-hmm. that's for the better. Before we, we even concepted this business, we, we weren't anticipating this, but just this past year, the NCAA instituted regulation around early recruiting, which was running rampant in our sport as eighth graders were committing to Division I schools. So where we started this conversation was around the end game of getting access to institutions uh, And that race to get recruited was beginning in middle school. We were fielding a lot of questions from parents saying, how do I get in front of a coach? Now you can get in front of coaches, but they can't have a conversation with you or your club coach. They can't make an offer until you're a junior in high school. So we really believe that this shift, and credit to the NCAA because they've traditionally uh, avoided regulation for non-revenue sports like lacrosse, 
we're going to see this shift and hopefully allow parents and players to relax and practice more and believe and invest in the long game of improvement so that when they do get to their junior year, uh, that they have a better shot of being recruited. It's not a race. It's not a, uh, a f- uh, almost a forcing mechanism to sport specialize so you can race and be in a better position. So your take on the NCAA regulation and how that has either impacted or affected us as a business. So I, I think that you hit most of the salient points on this. Um, I don't think you're going to talk to too many folks in the space that aren't going to see this as anything but a massive net positive for the sport and then the culture more broadly. Um, what we have seen over the last decade or so is, is really sort of a proverbial race to the bottom. Um, and you said it earlier specifically, what that ended up proliferating in is, you know, early, early club commitments. Um, there's also a, a bit of an agency issue on the side of a lot of these club organizations and end up being a, a more or less a middleman for college coaches um, between parents and college coaches. And they, and they hold a lot of weight based on that position because in many ways they're controlling the destiny of those young players. Um, in this world now, you know, ideally, you know, a couple of things are going to come from it. One is you know, players are going to be able to have fun for a bit longer, right? Uh, eventually there's going to be the pressure of recruiting, I could not imagine having to deal with getting recruited in the eighth grade. I had enough trouble making a commitment as a senior in high school um, and to try and go through that process. I mean, I'm sure it would have been great to know where I was going all of my high school years. Yeah. Um, But I don't think that that is, you know, obviously uh, to a far lopsided detriment of going through what I think is a healthy process in growth through your high school years and getting able to really um, weigh the options of, of a college education in different areas and, and sort of and discover yourself. Yeah. For, and, and these are verbal commitments too. Re- remember, these verbal commitments can be rescinded. Mm-hmm. Until October of your senior year, which is National Signing Day, I, I made my commitment my s- September of my senior year. Uh, that was more of the norm then, so I didn't feel the pressure mm-hmm. uh, to commit early. But even during that time, it was it was murky that that like you could make a commitment as an eighth grader and if you got injured or decided lacrosse wasn't for you or all of your peers caught up to you, that offer could theoretically be rescinded. And, and the kind of the, the mutual uh, deterrence aspect of it is that we saw some players also pull back from their verbal and, and go elsewhere. Um, the, the nuance here though, is that when the NCAA instituted this regulation, uh, the early commits grandfathered through. So there are eighth graders who have committed and they're still under verbal. So we're still going to see over these next couple of years, either coaches uh, rescinding that verbal or players saying, Hey, I'm going to, I've decided to go elsewhere, uh, which, which we think is, is pretty unique and, and, and fun from an entertainment media perspective to report on. Uh, but overall think the, the change in governance of, of players committing or, or being eligible to commit their junior year in high school is, is really good. I live a life on the road. From training to competition, the Rabel Tour, speaking engagements, and most importantly, travel to my podcast guest locations, like this evening. Having compatible luggage has been greatly important for me and my mindfulness, and I use Away. Away is first-class luggage at a coach price. Their approach is simple. 
They create special objects that are designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way that we all travel today. So they built their product from thousands of conversations with travelers like myself. So here are a number of reasons why I like Away, outside of me taking mine everywhere with me. Number one, their interior features a patent-pending compression system, which is twofold. It's helpful for overpackers like myself. Number two, TSA-approved combination lock that's built into the top of the bag and prevents theft. This is huge for travelers like myself that prefer not to check bags. Number three, it has a removable, washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean ones. And last but not least, there is a built-in chargeable outlet for yours and my devices. Now, because you're a loyal student podcast listener, of course, I've sourced a great deal to layer on top of an already affordable product. You can get $20 off a brand new Away Travel suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up and use promo code suiting up during checkout. That's awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up for $20 off your suitcase. Away, it's first class luggage at a coach price. Your experience as an athlete scholar, when you went through that process and were going through it, how much time were you dedicating on field to sport and creating time and dedicating to your, your academics? It's an interesting and, and, and often uh, very underrated uh, topic to discuss how effectively college athletes are holding two full-time jobs. Yeah. So it's, it's a massive challenge across all sports. Um, there was, there was a gentleman that came and visited that, that put it very well. I can't remember the guy's name, but he came and chatted to the Dartmouth football team. He was a former Dartmouth football player and he put it really realistically and it stuck with me. So there, there are really three levers that I could pull when I was in college and one was football one was academics and one was social. And there is that small fraction of the group that can do all three really well. Assume that you're not that small fraction of the group. Yep. Um, and I was not that small fraction of the group. So thinking through those, you know, you had to sort of balance, okay, which ones of these do I want to do well and exceed at or excel at at a high level? I cared a lot about football. I knew that football had punched my ticket to that school, so I felt a little bit of... Um, Obviously, pride around that, but also um, the expectation in myself to perform for that. Um, academically and socially, I probably pulled academics a little bit harder than the social, um, but certainly did not, um, you know, did not hold back completely. And I believe that you know, I would say that happily because it's an important part of your college experience. Right. Um, in terms of hourly commitment, you know, in season, oftentimes you're looking at six-hour days plus. Um, on traveling weeks, I know that the, um, I, I believe that the NCAA time cap, I think it's 20 hours a week yep. is what they technically put it at. Yep. Um, you know, if you're traveling, you're looking at another 40, 48 hours right there. Yep. Um, you, you know, some folks are able to study on the bus, study in the hotel. And that's, that's, you know, hats off to them. That was certainly never my experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it really is it's a full-time job while you're at school. Um, and trying to balance the other two is, is a challenge. Um, my, my biggest advice to anybody is, you know, set goals around those things and just try and be as deliberate as you can. Um, understand where you want to be in four years and how, how you need to get there. Yep. Um, you know, I had some friends that did extremely well in school 
and probably pulled the football lever a little bit less. And they're really happy for that right now. And I'm happy for those guys. Um, and, you know, folks that, that existed all across the board. But I think as long as you're being deliberate and true to your values, then I think you're in a good place. Where are you pulling most of your information from? And, and primarily, how, how are you setting your, your, kind of your goals moving forward as a career professional? Yeah. So in terms of information, I'm definitely a, a binge consumer across channels. So when you and I first started talking, I was listening to two to three podcasts a day. Yeah. Um, and that was from... You know, self-help and, and personal growth on the Tim Ferriss side um, uh, over to, you know, Gimlet podcast with, with your startup and your reply all, um, you know, uh, right now I'm in an audio book and uh, email newsletter phase. So that's where I'm living at this time. I think the healthier balance is to, to strike a balance across all mediums. Yeah. Um, but you can't consume everything. Uh, that's 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 part of the issue right now is there's so much information being being shot your way it's difficult to digest and sift through what's really truly valuable um you know i think you and you and i have discussed this in the past on email newsletters if you've deleted an email newsletter you know five to ten times in a row without reading it it's probably no longer useful to you yeah um but i think if you can pick three to four email newsletters a couple of podcasts and folks that you really enjoy listening to um and then just be reading a book at all times. You know, it's not something you necessarily need to set aside an hour for every day, but just have one in mind um, and just be deliberate about what you're reading. You know, even if it's fiction, you know, I, I think that there's value in that as well. There's cathartic value. Um, there's creative growth that comes from that. Just understand why you're doing it. You know, set that goal. As we wrap this thing up, I appreciate you hopping on. You're always a wealth of knowledge, uh, especially when we sit down and have these conversations. I've encouraged you to uh, tweet more because I'm sure this stuff would be uh, would be highly consumed. And uh, and so that that's my one request leaving. So so right now the sporadic LinkedIn posting is 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 the, been the majority of the of the knowledge output. Yep. Um, and then on site at events. And then certainly on site at events, um, which of course is is. Um, I would say it's deliberate to create scarcity, but the truth is I just you know, haven't gotten behind the tweeting piece. If you enjoyed making my conversation, please be sure to let us know. Follow and mention us on social media and encourage Mick to tweet more. His handle is at Real Mick Davis. Mine is at Paul Rabel. You'll be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one -on -one conversation with my older brother and Dartmouth football player and business partner, Mike Rabel. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. And when you find us, please hit subscribe. Give us a rating and review. It goes a long way. Check out this episode's show notes at suitinguppodcast.com. And thank you to today's sponsors, Molecule and Away Travel. Have a great day, evening, and week ahead, everyone. <laughs>